Um, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the Hong Kong Theatre. Uh, sounds a bit sort of generation game, that, doesn't it? Welcome to the Hong Kong Theatre at London School of Economics. Um, my name is Nick Byrne. I'm the chair for um, this event. Um, I'm director of the Language Centre here at LSE and also UK director of the Confucius Institute for Business, uh, which is here at LSE as well. Um, it's, it's a really great pleasure because I'm actually going to move amongst you and just enjoy the show that's about to start. Uh, and it's great not to be stuck on stage um, making copious notes about very complicated political or sociological things that I'm going to be asked about later. So this is a real joy for me, absolutely. Um, LSE actually does have... Um, a strong involvement with China. Um, within the Language Centre, we've got about 350 students learning Mandarin, um, and we only started it last year, but we've actually got students studying Mandarin as part of their degree, 25% of their degree. And um, we're really hoping for a new generation of international relations students, economic students, sociology students, who've actually got that strong 25% actually in Mandarin studies. And we're linked up with Fudan University in Shanghai and also Tsinghua in Beijing uh, for their help. And it's a further connection with Beidar. Anyway, so that's the sort of um, big build-up about LSE in China. But um, you can tell that I'm not part of the brothers here, the Power Brothers. Uh, what we have here is Colin and we have Ryan, who are going to proceed now. It's an amazing time, um, a good hour um, for you to listen about their journey. I'm very, very jealous. I just came back from China last week. The total antithesis of what you've done. Um, I had nine grueling days in four-star hotels. I flew, you know, above where you trekked. And, um, you know, the strain you can see on my face. So how you did what you did, I don't know. But uh, you did it, and I want to see all about it. So a big round of applause, actually, for both <laughs> So uh, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's wonderful to be at the LSE again. Uh, it's always a place that Colin and I try to come and visit when we're in town. And tonight we've got, you know, an exciting story for you. Um, in 2010, Colin and I somehow were motivated by the concept of riding a motorcycle around China. And we, in our weakness, thought that that would be a good idea. And 65 days, 18,000 kilometers later, we've, we kind of barely survived uh, and ended up making a television show and writing a book about our adventure. And tonight we're going to kind of take you through that adventure. We've got a lot of pictures and a lot of personal stories we're going to go through. But first, uh, just to kind of give you an idea of what happened to us on this journey, uh, we're going to start with a, a brief video. It's kind of like a, a trailer for our television series. And then this will kind of be the basis for our conversation. Can we dim the lights, please? Is that possible? My brother and I are starting this unbelievable journey. 20,000 kilometers, 60 days. Let's get out of Shanghai, baby! Watch out for this yellow bus. We're always tight. It's the perfect storm. No way we're going to... 
through here. This must be one of the most beautiful places you can take a motorcycle. Here he goes, he's flying! 100 kilometers of feeling really high in the next 100 kilometers. Can you guys hear that audio? ever ridden around China on a motorbike. I keep turning this thing to the left and it's just not rolling. This is the adventure of a life. This is the middle human life. I've been living here in China for 10 years. My brother's been in Canada. Uh, he's been working in the finance industry very hard, and he just needed a break. I had my own business in the city, in big city Toronto, and the lifestyle was just killing me. I, I was an entrepreneur, and I sold my business, and I just had to get out. It's not what I wanted. Okay. Did you work in a cubicle? Like a, a box type thing, where your whole life is like walled in? People were boxed in emotionally. You can't attempt an epic journey like we did without, you know, knowing that there's going to be a lot of risks and that it's going to be challenging. Totally lost the bike from underneath there. But I just felt like we grew every day. Every day on the trip we got a little bit wiser and uh, became a little bit more respectful about these types of challenges that we set for ourselves. I've never felt so helpless in my life before. to how people live life in China. And it's opened my eyes to, you know, intense poverty and sort of intense happiness as well. <laughs> it's not just a motorcycle trip. It's not a two brothers trip. It's getting out there and experiencing life and experiencing nature. And really enjoying the journey, not just the destination. And I think that's really important in all walks of life. This yeah, is, that's great. This we, is our, our Guinness World Record. Yeah. Not bad, huh? Colin and I were debating. Yeah. And we thought, what would be harder than China? What, what country is more chaotic, has almost as many people, and maybe has even more dangerous roads? And potentially worse toilets. So we are going to try to circumnavigate India next. The roads are... Potentially worse than China. Worse, yeah, we'll have to be extra. Safe. Worse infrastructure and more cows. If you hit a cow, you'll be lynched. They're sacred, you know. I know. Sacred cows are really quick, though. They get out of the way. They move quick. Did you hear that? I didn't hear that. Apparently. Don't just say crap because the camera's on. <laughs> well, I don't read guidebooks. You're the update boy. I'm the update boy. So, yes, we're doing it. Uh, and, um, <laughs> That's the quietest I've ever heard the LSE. So uh, thank you very much for that. I'm sorry it wasn't a little bit uh, louder. But we made the first silent adventure television series. Um, so After the huge hit of the, the last silent film. Yeah. Can we turn the lights back? Or actually, it's probably OK like this. Um, so as, as I mentioned, uh, Colin and I came to this idea that riding a motorcycle around China would be a good idea. 
and we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into. Uh, but first, we'll kind of go through a little bit about who we each are and, uh, and how we came to, uh, to undertake this amazing adventure. And, uh, Carl, why don't you start here? Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, so I was the novice in uh, about, just about everything for the trip. I'd never really been on a motorcycle journey more than 250 kilometers. Um, I had only sort of ridden a bike in the city. Um, and I'd really never spent any time in China, didn't speak Chinese, um, wasn't even a huge fan of Chinese food, uh, but, uh, but we thought it was a, a good idea. Um, I, was, I was a banker, I was a currency trader, I ran a currency brokerage firm in Toronto, um, you know, just a finance guy, zero-sum game, working really hard, uh, trying to make as much money as I can with, without, without losing it all. Um, I ended up selling my business and, and sort of just wanted a real change. Um, just wanted to get off the treadmill uh, before it, it started going too quickly where I could never get off. Uh, and so I talked to Ryan about, you know, hitting the road, having a real adventure. And uh, so I sold everything. Sold my house, uh, uh, sold my business, sold my car, sold my motorcycle, and, uh, and, and we hit the road. Um, after we finished the MK ride, I, I went and did, a, did an MBA here in London at Holt International Business School. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, we actually rode around India, um, which we won't get into too much uh, this evening. Um, and then, uh, and now sort of running a, a family business, a Mandarin language school. So, so Ryan and his wife, uh, Jasmine, started up Mandarin House back in uh, 2004 in Shanghai and Beijing. And, and now we uh, just opened up a school in London. So. Um, it's a quick, uh, quick, brief bio of myself. Excellent. Um, this is a shot of Colin in Jiayuguan, which is in Gansu province, which is the furthest west, sec furthest west section of the uh, Great Wall of China. And uh, that's another great shot. Uh, that's kind of central ch northern China, Inner Mongolia, uh, an example of, of what the grasslands are like there and the beautiful blue skies that we had the pleasure of riding through on a daily basis. So who am I? Well, uh, I graduated university in 2001 from the University of Toronto and kind of moved to China right away. I had an interest and uh, taught myself how to be a photographer in China and then eventually uh, worked my way up uh, kind of the food chain and started working for the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, and Fortune and was eventually um, named one of the 30 emerging photographers in the world. But, you know, the publishing industry started to slow down a lot and I felt like I was being kind of constrained a little bit creatively. And I thought, you know, I had all this experience in China. I'd worked in all the provinces as a photographer. Like, what can I do to show people a little bit of a different side of China? What can we do to, um, to show people kind of the other side of China, not just, you know, the high-rises in Shanghai and the pollution in Beijing? You know, there is more to the country. And then just as I was kind of going through these ideas in my head, Colin comes to me and says, I've quit my job. We must go on an adventure. And that's kind of uh, how it started. So in 2010, we actually did the Middle Kingdom ride, which is what we're talking about here tonight. And it's taken us kind of a year and a half or two to, um, to prepare a book. And then our television show actually just debuted last week on Travel Channel uh, here in the UK, which is on Sky. And uh, tonight, I hope we can finish early enough so you can all go home and watch episode three, which starts at 8 p.m. Um, <laughs> And on top of it all, you know, in 2011, we actually were awarded a Guinness World Record for our journey around China for being um, a little bit slow in the head to even try to attempt something this massive. And this is an example of some of my photography work that I used to do in China. 
Uh, this was in 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed, and that kind of financial crisis led to a lot of closures, uh, factory closures in southern China. So these were some unemployed factory people that we went down and did a story about. And, uh, you know, when you're doing a great motorcycle trip around a country, you need motorcycles. And, Carl, what kind of bikes did we have here? Yeah, we went, again, in China it's very difficult to uh, get foreign motorcycles into the country. Um, and really the only foreign bikes in the country are BMW and Harley-Davidson. Um, and we didn't feel like riding around China on sort of 250cc Chinese uh, motorcycles. So uh, we opted with, with BMWs, uh, 800GS. Um, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic bike for the journey. Um, far more comfortable than our Royal Enfields in India. Uh, and, uh, and they sort of they held their ground quite well. We had a few breakdowns, um, neither of us mechanics, which made for some interesting... Uh, 5,000 meter sort of uh, quick, quick patches, but, uh, but we got through it. And I think this picture was actually taken on day two, so the bikes look actually very clean. Uh, obviously, they got really roughed up and quite a bit more dirty uh, as we kind of continued along. I hadn't fallen yet. You hadn't fallen yet, yeah. Once he fell, all the, all the body work kind of fell apart. Um, it's important to realize that when Colin and I set out on this journey, you know, we very much wanted to make a television show. We didn't make a television show by accident. Uh, and we were very lucky to hire this man. His name is Chad Ingram. And Chad is also a Canadian. Uh, Colin and I are from Toronto, and we only work with Canadians. It's one of our rules. And um, so we hired Chad. And actually, it was Chad's job to follow us for 65 days. And uh, he was miserable the whole time. He hates us now. We don't talk anymore. But he did produce a hell of a television show. So we've got to give Chad a little bit of a thanks. And you can see these cameras here. Um, if you can see... Over here on the left, these are called GoPro cameras, and they're very, very small HD cameras. And apart from having like a big shoulder cam, um, we also had a lot of these small cameras on our helmets and uh, on the bike and these types of things. And that allowed us to show a lot of different angles while we were making the film. So we had to be a little bit creative about how we were actually filmmaking, which, uh, which is always a challenge. I'll, I'll do the route. Yeah. I'll do I the route. That's best. So I live actually in Shanghai. That's been my home since 2002, and you can see it's kind of midway up the coast, the eastern coastline in China, and Khan and I thought, you know what, we don't want to try to visit every province, that's going to be tough, so let's just circumnavigate the outer edges of China, let's, let's kind of explore the borderlands, and what we ended up doing was we started here in Shanghai, and we went north into Jiangsu, Jiangsu and then Shandong, and then into Liaoning, Jilin, and we went to Changbaishan to look over the border into North Korea, which is quite topical these days. And then um, we went across Jilin province into Inner Mongolia, through Gansu, all the way through Xinjiang to the border of China and Pakistan on the furthest western edges of China. And then from there we took this fantastic highway called the G219 highway into western Tibet, and then all the way down to Everest Base Camp, to Lhasa, to Yunnan, Guangxi, Guangdong, Fujian, Zhejiang, back up to Shanghai. So we did a full circle around the country. We did not visit every province. And actually I was giving this talk a few weeks ago to, in a Chinese university, and some young woman from Ningxia province, which is right here, got really pissed off at me because I didn't visit Ningxia. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry I missed it. And I think she worked for the Tourism Bureau. It was pretty close. Yeah, we did get close. We, we close. skirted the northern border, but we never made it in, which wasn't good enough for her. Um, where were we here? This yeah, was... I think this is early in the trip. You can always tell how early we are in the trip by how much facial hair we have. 
Um, and so this is clearly maybe three-day stubble. Um, and yes, you know, just us at the beginning of the trip, uh, we still are, are high on spirits even after some very difficult uh, first couple days riding. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the bike's looking pretty good there, actually. Yeah, we're looking very well-nourished and uh, looking like we have some energy. So just keep this picture in mind because as we roll through a few more pictures, you'll see the, f you'll see the physical body uh, begin to deteriorate. Um, oh, this is good. Colin, uh, you know, we took a car ferry uh, across the Bohai Bay from Weihai in northern Shandong province to Dalian in Liaoning province. And we had a great time at this because, you know, we'd never been on a car ferry before. Canada's not an island, although, you know, I guess some people maybe here have done that before. But uh, so we actually drove our motorcycles into that big gaping hole and then the whole thing comes down and then you head out. And it was great, but uh, we had a lot of difficulty getting the tickets for um, the car ferry, and these fine gentlemen uh, took some time to figure out how to classify us. Because in China, you have a ticket for a car, and you have a bicycle, which is free, and then you have a motorcycle like this. And this is important to say because, you know, in China, people don't ride motorcycles from one city to another or from one province to another. It's an inner-city commuting uh, tool. And, uh, and the fact that we were trying to ride from province to province to province and kind of, you know, use these kinds of car ferries and, and expressways to get from one place to another, it freaked people out. And, but I think these guys just really liked the bike. So they spent a lot of time, and then they get the cell phones out, and they're taking some pictures. Everyone's got a camera on their phone. So they were pretty excited about the uh, BMWs. Oh, you, well, you got you to gotta get into this one. This is the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so actually, if you can see here... The, the river there, that's actually on the other side, is North Korea. So I was, I'm a pretty good golfer, and I was trying to get a, just the right slice to maybe sort of hit uh, maybe Kim Jong-il at the time. Yeah. Um, maybe that would have solved a lot of problems. Uh, but, uh, but it was really cool. We, you know, we had a day off. We were waiting for our, our support vehicle that actually had a, a flat tire. Um, so, uh, so we just sort of had a little bit of fun. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about China that I didn't really realize uh, before I went is, again, even outside of the major cities on the East Coast, um, you get this massive sort of wealth inequality. And so this was sort of a nice gated community with sort of a golf course. And the girl beside, you know, a few, a few stalls down, she actually had, you know, nice tailor-made golf clubs with her Louis Vuitton bag and her golf pro sitting there. You, you know, you'd think you're in, in some little posh uh, golf course in, in, you know, Atlanta or something like that. It, it, it was just shocking. And here, here we are. If I got a real good slice going, I could probably get a ball into North Korea. Um, so it really sort of struck home the contrast. Yeah, this is, in, uh, this is just north of Dandong uh, in Liaoning province, and that's the Yalu River. And in some places, the Yalu River is maybe only 20 or 30 meters wide. Um, so it's just 20, 30 meter kind of swim to get into North Korea. And you can see how so many people come across uh, from the other side, which is a problem in China. Oh, this is, this is a good one. This is um, from our hotel. They had a little coffee shop up on the top floor. And, of course, as you do when you're on the border with North Korea, you must have a pair of binoculars. And, actually, this is a big Chinese housing development, which is pretty common. <laughs> uh, and then this, this back here, that's North Korea. Um, and this is the Yalu River here. So, you know, and it's strange. At nighttime, you know, Dandong 
is in is this great you know little uh, river city. It probably has at least a million people. It's a hustling, bustling city. People there are up you know all night working, and there's taxis and horns, and the lights on the buildings are amazing. And it's like a it's a you know it's an economic miracle in its own right. But then at night you look through these binoculars, and North Korea is black. There's no lights in the buildings. There's no cars. There's nothing. And Ferris you, wheel, for there, some reason. There was a Ferris wheel, but it, it wasn't on at nighttime. Uh, we did see a Ferris wheel moving around. But, but uh, you know, that contrast of how two countries have kind of grown in the last 40, 50 years and being so close together uh, is, an, is an eerie thing. Um, March 2010? Yeah, so March 2010, I, I'd sold my business in 2008. I worked for uh, contractually part of the transaction. I had to stay on for two years. Worst two years of my life. Don't ever do it. If you sell a business, just run, run. Um, so uh, Ryan was in town. I was in New York for uh, for uh, an event, a, a gallery event he was doing, and so I popped down from Toronto. It was a quick flight, and sort of was chatting with him and saying, you know, I need to make a move. This isn't this isn't how I want to spend the rest of my life. And uh, and and it was there, really, in Central Park. We remember it. Over the course of eating a 12-inch sub. Subway sandwiches? Subway sandwich. Not I had a, a Snapple lemonade. Yeah, not a sponsor, just an enjoyable <clears throat> sandwich. Um, we sort of decided, uh, you know, we came up with the idea that um, let's go for a ride, you know, let's travel in China. And then we said, well, how do we get around? And we said, well, we could ride motorcycles. And, um, and then we sort of went to the Apple store. It was just sort of right around the corner. Fifth Avenue, Central Park South. Yeah, I don't know New York so well, but it was the big one, um, and uh, and sort of we, we started looking at a map and, and we started to, to sort of plan plan the route, um, and then from there it was really about two weeks where I, I went home and uh, talked to my wife and, and sort of said that uh, I think I think I need a change, and so I went and resigned, um, gave them my notice, put our house on the market. And, uh, and before we knew it, we were sort of down a path that, that had more momentum, uh, and there was just no stopping. No stopping it, yes. Uh, yeah, I think D-Day, what's D-Day? Uh, D-Day is the day of no return. So two brothers have an idiotic idea in Central Park. Let's ride motorcycles around China. Uh, why do people not do this kind of adventure? Because uh, we have families. <laughs> and, and then for the next kind of two months, we had to convince our wives that this was a good idea. And you can imagine the debating that must have gone on. So I remember I came home from New York and I said to my wife, I said, I'm going to ride a motorcycle around China. And she goes, what's the longest motorcycle trip you've been on? And I said, One day, two days, two days, about 400 kilometers. And she goes, and how many kilometers are you going to do? 18,000. How many days are you going to be away? About 60. And she goes, really? Like, does that not sound you know, like crazy to you? And then I said, oh, and it gets, it gets more interesting. We're going to make a television show. And my wife's very dry. And she's like, she's like, have you made a television show before? And I said, no. And she goes, does that also sound a little bit crazy to you? I said, it's going to be okay. We've got this vision. You know, we've got this idea. It was all very soft and cuddly. You know, how do you actually make it happen? And then from kind of May 1st to July, Colin and I started planning the trip and getting it down and knowing where we might sleep, where we might eat, where we might get gas. How do you drive in Tibet? You know, where are we going to get the bikes? All these kinds of huge questions started popping up. And it started making us really nervous. And then we thought, you know what? We need to go to Germany. Because that's where all the answers are. So we went, to the, we went to this German motorcycle training center just north of Munich. And Colin and I had never ridden a motorcycle off-road before. 
like just complete idiots. You can imagine you're riding through. You know, you got this trip through China. Half of it is going to be on dirt roads, and we've never ridden on a dirt road before. So we went to this motorcycle training camp,、um, and it's like a three-day camp for. Bankers, basically, and we really, we really got in there, and we were like, okay, how do you ride in sand, and how do you ride through a river, and and how do you ride up a hill, and how do you ride down a hill? And actually, that course saved our lives.、Um, it was the single greatest thing we did、uh, before we went on that trip because we spent 22 days riding in Tibet, and every day was up a mountain, down a mountain, through a river, up a mountain, down a mountain, through a river, and you know that kind of gave us the confidence. Um, that we could actually do something like this, although we're not really lacking a lot of confidence in our daily lives. So that kind of kind of portrayed over. And then Sunday, August the fifteenth was day one. We left my house in Shanghai, and、uh, you can imagine. So you're on this motorcycle adventure, and you're a super safe, you know, Caucasian Canadian, and you're super conservative, and you got your motorcycle boots on, and they come up to your knees, and your pants, and you've got knee pads, and you've got the jacket with the pack padding, helmet, you've got your gloves on. 40 degrees Celsius, unbelievable. And Colin, to this day, believes that it was the hottest and hardest day of the entire trip, and he got heat stroke. 40 degrees in Shanghai. I still, it's it's quite warm. The, the humidex was off the charts. What about this one? <laughs>、um, yeah. So this is actually,、uh, you know, after we after we went past Dandong,、um, we hit we hit a ton of rain. Um, and actually, I remember that time, and we were in Munich.、Uh, and, and after, don't, don't, don't tell this. I have to.、Uh, it was probably the worst decision of the whole trip. I think happened before the trip. We were in、uh, in Munich because buying motorcycle equipment in, in China is actually extremely expensive.、Um, so we thought we'd get、uh, get our gear in, in Germany while we were there.、Um, and so we go to the sort of BMW World in in, in Munich, and, and we buy、uh, buy up a bunch of gear and. We're looking at the the rain suits. We're saying, huh? Yeah, they're pretty expensive.、Um, is it going to rain? No, it's not going to rain in China. Not in August. That would be silly, right? And I'm like, are you sure? Because it's a pretty big country.、Uh, you're you're pretty good to say that two and a half months、uh, going all around China is not going to rain. No, no rain. No rain at all. It's, it's the dry season. Yeah. So it、uh, rained on us six days in a row,、uh, <laughs> pretty much to start the trip, and.、Uh, And yeah, we got soaking wet. And of course, when you get wet, you know your leather gloves don't dry, your leather boots don't dry, your clothes barely dry. So every morning you're putting on the same moldy, nasty clothes,、uh, which is good fun. And then this happens. Where was this? This was in、uh, Jilin Province.、Uh, do you remember that? We yeah, yeah, this was landslide. So obviously, when you have six days of rain, and and the rain, and it wasn't just six days of rain. It was just torrential downpours. People, you know. Two hundred and fifty thousand people were being relocated uh, because uh, because that's actually a small number. That's、yeah. not much at all. That's like one village. Yeah, they didn't have、much. rain suits either.、Um, so, so yeah, this is just an example of the landslide. I remember the landslide came. We're sort of relatively in the middle of nowhere, and and,、uh, and when it happened, I I, I thought, you know,、uh, we could be here for a few days.、Um, there's no way this will get sort of cleaned up pretty quick. And you know we were there for maybe two hours in the pouring rain, and all of a sudden this tractor comes、yeah. and just takes care of the whole thing. And I was just like, "That's pretty amazing." <laughs> I was shocked at the efficiency in China. They're building everywhere, so there's you know you're never within a few、uh, miles of a tractor. Yeah, there's there's you know there's bulldozers everywhere. Two hours, someone went back down the hill, paid the guy a hundred RMB, which is like ten quid, 
Guy comes up, clears the whole thing. Mud was up to our knees. No way the bikes were getting through. No way the cars were getting through. And, uh, and yeah, that's what... Uh, and then we had to get a picture next to the bulldozer, of course. So that was that shot. In our soaking wet BMW non-rain gear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Very wet on that day. Um, so, Carl, the original plan? The original plan was to... Uh, it was simple. Make a TV show with other people's money. <laughs> and have a great adventure while doing it. Uh, what really happened, uh, we raised zero money, uh, and we made a TV show with our own money, uh, and we had a great time riding around China. Um, it was not sort of the original plan, but again, once you quit your job, sell your house, and, uh, and, and put all your stuff in storage, you can't There's really no it. going back. There isn't any going back. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, so we sort of, again, it just the trip had more momentum, uh, and had a life of itself, and we just had to, we just had to run with it. So the, uh, the original idea was to circumnavigate China counterclockwise, because we thought we want to get the northern bit out before the winter kind of came. And, um, and I planned it. I did a lot of the planning. I'm kind of like that. I really like my planning and my schedules. And I planned it for 60 days, and without a breakdown in Tibet, we would have been home right on 60 days. And that would have been awesome, but we were just 65 days, which still irks me a little bit. And um, obstacles along the way. So, again, day one, 40 degrees Celsius, Colin gets heat stroke, he's almost throwing up in his helmet. Not good. Uh, flooding along the Yalu River, it rained on us for four or five days, that sucked. Uh, we got stopped by the military a lot. Very strange. If you want to circumnavigate China in the border areas you're going to run into a lot of Chinese military. And uh, they love big motorcycles and foreign guys dressed in full kit. So that ended up being okay. We saw a lot of tanks, um, and we ended up getting uh, caught up in a lot of picture-taking, which was good fun, good cultural experiences. We even had sandstorms, hailstorms. We had some bad falls along the route. And then I think the highlight of the journey for both of us was very much uh, the G219 highway. So... China actually um, names all of its highways in China with, uh, with some letters. And G is like the national highway symbol. And the G219 highway goes from northwest Xinjiang into southwest Tibet. And it's the highest and most remote highway in the world. Average altitude of 5,000 meters, which is about 16,000 feet. And it's not for children. And uh, it was probably the toughest part of our journey. Um, you know, you ride all day 10, 12 hours standing up on the motorcycle, dirt roads, rivers, up a mountain, down a mountain, uh, very physically challenging. You're getting altitude sickness at night because you're not sleeping because uh, it feels like there's an elephant sitting on your chest. I don't know if anyone's been up that high. It's not, it's not a good feeling. Uh, so that was a really tough kind of four or five days on the journey. I actually blew out my clutch on the motorcycle. You know these guys at the motorcycle shops? They said, what do they say? The, the clutch will last 20,000 kilometers, no problem but just don't do 5,000 kilometers in Tibet because that'll destroy your clutch. So I actually blew out my clutch. And then um, just to top it off, 55 days on the road, we come out of Tibet, got 10 more days to get home, and it rains on us every day on the way home. So just we kind of finished the trip with a whimper and not, uh, not in a kind of historic uh, hand-raising event, but uh, the rain really did beat us down on our journey. It was a tough one. Call, do you want to talk about this one? This is actually at the border of uh, Pakistan, uh, the highest border crossing in the world, 5,200 yep. meters, I believe. 52, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was, uh, after day one, it was probably the second worst day. <laughs> um, there were good days, so I'll maybe get into those later. But 
Again, you can see our legs are wet. And when you start at 3,000 meters, roughly 2,500. Tashkarkan, 3,000 meters, raining. Raining, 11 degrees. 11 degrees Celsius. And we climb 2,500 meters, roughly. 5,500 meters above sea level. And it's a complete blizzard snowstorm. And we've now been riding in the rain, so we're frozen. The, the, our, all of our gear is wet, and as we climbed, it froze. Um, and our batteries froze on our motorcycle, actually. There's a picture coming up next. But uh, it, was, it was tough. And, and you know what? We actually, one of our bikes, we couldn't get restarted, so we actually couldn't take our motorcycles to the border of Pakistan, which was uh, still kind of bothers me. I, I might, we might have to go back sometime with, with rain suits, perhaps. Yes. Rain suits would have been the, uh, the, the, the optimal, yeah. The key. So we really just sort of jumped in, uh, hugged the uh, border guards quickly, take a picture, and, uh, and sort of run back down because it was probably the coldest I've ever been in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, coming from a Canadian, that, that should hold a little bit of weight. Yeah, you know, when you, anytime you're riding in the rain, you're, you know, your, your clothing get wet, your boots get wet, your gloves are wet. You know, even inside, your helmet's wet, and then you keep climbing, and then it, everything starts to freeze to your skin. Um, and you basically get hypothermia. Like, your, your clothes are ice cubes, and they're sticking to your skin, and, you know, you're shaking, and, uh, and it was a horrible day. And anytime you see a grown man with this kind of body language, um, it's not healthy. So, you know, you can tell I'm just shaking. I'm like, take the effing picture, and let's go. And... And these Pakistani guys, they're like, what the hell's going on? And he's in his official uh, Pakistani military clothing in his blue jeans. And they were good fun. They're like, oh, did you guys try to ride a motorcycle up here in the hailstorm? <laughs> it's like, yeah, awesome. I like his beret, though. That's quite cool. Um, they liked our balaclavas. They did like the balaclavas. What's, this is, uh, yeah. So I just mentioned the, the, the batteries actually froze. Um, so... Uh, so I, we didn't know this could happen. Again, we were novice uh, motorcycle riders. We had no idea that actually, if you, uh, you know, if you if you get it frozen wet and then it freezes, that, that it actually might not work. Uh, we were like BMW, German made. It worked everywhere. Well, the, um, the, that's a good point because actually, it's important to know that Colin and I had never done a motorcycle trip before. We know nothing about motorcycles. We never took a mechanics course. We don't even know how to really take out the battery. We barely know how to fix a tire, and somehow we thought we could do this epic journey. So, you know, we're updating our Facebook page every day. We're updating our Twitter page every day, and we said to someone, like, oh, our batteries froze today, and we must have got, like, 50 comments on our Facebook page. You are an idiot. So it's like, oh, you should have got a gel battery. And we're like, what's a gel battery? Like... And it's like, oh, they won't freeze. And we're like, oh, if we'd only figured that out, you know. There were so many of these kind of like, oh, moments where we, where we were not as smart as we could have been. Um, let me talk about this one briefly. Colin and I spent a lot of time, um, we, we camped quite a few nights. So this picture uh, is of me. And we were in Tibet riding through some really, really tough roads. And... You know, the idea behind the show, the idea behind our trip was 300 kilometers a day, 60 days, that equals 18,000 kilometers. So my math is not as good as his. So we thought, all right, 300 kilometers a day. So yeah, we can do 300 kilometers a day in eastern China. And then in Tibet, we can also do 300 kilometers a day, even though there's no road and you're riding through rivers. Anyways, that wasn't the case. Every night, we never really got to the place where we wanted to get to. So we ended up having to camp several nights in a row. And I remember this because this was after like two, three nights camping. We finally got into a hotel, like 60 RMB a night. That's like six pounds a night. Great hotel. 
And I finally got to see a, a mirror for the first time in like three or four days. And I was appalled by what I saw. So I took a picture of it. And it's amazing because when you start out on these journeys, you know, we all live in the UK and we've got our food when we need it and we've got our coffees and we're just packing on the calories, right? But out there in Tibet, you're riding 12 hours a day. We both lost 25, 30 pounds. I, I don't recommend it as a diet. We were incredibly hairy, and if you look at my cheeks, they're totally sunburned because when you're riding up in Tibet at that height, you actually get an incredible amount of sun. Um, you're quite closer, you're, you know, closer to the sun, uh, but there's no cloud coverage. So you're just getting uh, killed by the UV rays. And I, I remember it was like three or four days since I'd seen myself in, in a mirror, and, uh, and I was kind of blown away by that. So an ugly, ugly shot, but a truthful one. Oh. Why don't you do this one? I think this is, uh, this is a great shot of actually the G219 highway. Um, and again, I, I'm an amateur of China. I, when, I, when I went on this trip, I, I really wanted to see China. My brother had told me so much about it, and I had no idea there were places like this in, in China. Um, it, it, just, it was amazing. It was just incredibly amazing. And every turn you made was just another painting more beautiful than the last. Uh, and, and Western China, Western Tibet is just, it's just stunning. The thing I liked about this was, and I remember this very clearly, so I'm sitting there, I'm packing away on some Oreo cookies because that's pretty much all you can get. I'm drinking some bottled water. And Colin and I, this picture is actually looking south. And, and this part on the left side, that is Xinjiang and Tibet. That is China. Um, and this side over here, that's kind of Pakistan and India. And and I remember we came up on this pass, and obviously we stopped because it was quite pretty. And it's like, yeah, let's take a picture. And then we started seeing this road. And then the road goes like that, and then it goes down the back, and then it goes up over there. And that's the G219 highway that we were going to spend the next four or five days on. And if you look at this landscape, you think, who in the hell is making a road here? Like, you could not find a more inhospitable place to, you know, do road construction. But somehow the Chinese have figured it out. And, you know, to our advantage, we were able to pass from western Xinjiang into western Tibet along the western edge of China um, because of this hair-raising road. And it was uh, absolutely the most challenging part of our journey. But not all the part of the journey was challenging. You were on this glider, weren't you? Look how pale Chad's legs are. I didn't realize that is pretty bad, actually. Yeah. Chad's legs. Uh, Canadians don't tan so well. Um, <laughs> This was, yeah, again, you can see the sand dunes in the background, and we'll, we'll show you a, a shot from, from the sky, but uh, I had no idea there were sand dunes in China. It's just, again, it's just, I know I sound like a broken record, but it, all the, I just thought China was, was eastern coast. I just thought the major cities, pollution, you know, crowded, giant skyscrapers, and, and we rolled up to, you know, sand dunes and camels. And I was just, uh, I was like, we got to stop. we got to do something here. This is crazy. This is crazy. And, uh, and so we decided to do something crazier and, and get in this little, you know, I don't even know what you call it, a little scooter with wings. Motorized <laughs> glider, I think is the term. So, yeah, so we were in Dunhuang in Gansu province. And these are where the famous kind of sand dunes are in western China. And we, we managed to find a guy with a glider. And, of course, uh, you know, we didn't ask for any kind of insurance or anything like this because that kind of doesn't really exist. So uh, we're all thumbs up here. That's Chad, Colin in the middle, myself on the right. We went up in the glider. We wanted to really show people what it looked like from up there. And, of course, it was stunning, um, you know, rolling across the sand dunes of western China in a small motorized scooter with wings 
is, uh, is something, you know, not for everyone, but we managed to kind of film it, and we felt like it was really important. And I remember Colin came down from the glider. You might not remember this. He came down from the glider, and he's like, whoa. He's like, I had no idea, like, China had dunes like this. I, he's like, I had no idea this kind of landscape even existed outside of, you know, Libya and Egypt and the Sahara. And, uh, you know, a part of China that's not often publicized. And, you know, this was, again, one of the reasons why we wanted to make our television show and write our book is because we really wanted to show pe people the kind of more remote places or the places in between um, and really kind of convey that message that as you travel around a country, kilometer by kilometer on a motorcycle, you see the entire country, you miss nothing. And that was really the goal of our, of our television show that we were trying to make. We survived. We were here. Um, I fell four times, uh, but somehow survived. Yeah. The last fall was really bad, and the bike uh, got, got hurt more than me, but, but uh, we, we both survived. Um, yeah, we were the first, per first people to circumnavigate China by motorcycle, and, and, uh, and Guinness awarded us with a great record, which we, were, we didn't set out to set a record. It was never in, in sort of the plans, but, uh, but we were happy to sort of receive it. And Do you remember the name of our Guinness World Record? It's incredibly complicated. It's like uh, the longest single journey within a single country without backtracking or overlapping. So if you ever thought you'd be quite cute and just ride around Switzerland seven times or eight times and get the record, that's not going to happen. So you have to actually carve new ground. <clears throat> and, uh, and yeah, we were very lucky. We, we were able to make a book uh, and a television series uh, out of our journey. And Chad, the man with the pale legs, uh, did a fantastic job following us for 65 days, uh, documenting our entire journey. And yes, we are alive. And we're coneheads. Um, this is a great example of kind of how cheery we were never. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, we wear these kind of balaclavas that you would wear when you're skiing. Uh, we were wearing them on a daily basis in some places in western China because it was so cold. And, you know, we thought, oh, yeah, September, it's mild. But it's not when you're up at like 3,000, 4,000 meters above sea level. So this is kind of how we started looking towards the rest of the, on the, you know, the second half of the journey. And it's, qu it's quite creepy, actually, looking back at that. Uh, the MK ride could not have been completed without a lot of help. Um, we're just going to roll through here. For example, these three Uyghur mechanics saved us. Um, they're all a little bit shorter than I was. I was not on. I was not wearing my high heels. And uh, these these three guys uh, are in Kashgar. And I remember we rolled into a uh, mechanic shop, and these three guys kind of stopped everything they were doing, and they're like, "We have to help these white guys who have no idea what they're doing." And uh, they kind of dedicated their morning to us, um, helping us out. And it demonstrates the kind of hospitality and the kind of excitement that people in China had about our journey. You know, people in eastern China, people in western China, people in, in Tibet, it didn't matter who they were from, what minority they were, what language they spoke, people came out of the woodwork to help us. And uh, these three guys are just an example of that. Also, Mandarin House Language School was our biggest partner. These kinds of trips do, uh, you know, cost a lot of money. Uh, Mandarin House has schools in Shanghai, Beijing, and now London, England. And we also worked with Touratech, which is a components company, Thompson Group, Oakley Sunglasses, Cardo. Pay special attention to this one, Airhawk. 
Motorcycle seat cushion, 65 days. Okay, you really need to take care of yourself back there or you can do some serious damage. It's very good. Uh, low Pro Pelican, and we actually raised a lot of money for the Seba Foundation, which was our charitable partner for the, for the trip, and they actually build hospitals in very remote places to help kind of provide uh, low-income people with free or in very high-quality eye care uh, to get people seeing again. So that was kind of a list of the kind of partners we had because we weren't just kind of going on an expedition. We weren't just making a television series. It was also kind of an expedition, and we were trying to raise money, trying to raise awareness of all these great things that are going on. And this is beautiful, beautiful Inner Mongolia. Yeah, I love this picture. It's just, uh, for me, it uh, really demonstrates what I sort of hoped the whole trip was going to be like. Um, no traffic. <laughs> no traffic, no smog, no rain. You can see the pavement's dry. Yeah. Um, and it was beautiful. Just a, just a great image. And, and Inner Mongolia is a special place, and, and uh, I'll always remember it. This was heaven. I mean, there were no, no, no towns, no gas stations, no 7-Elevens, uh, and just endless, endless rolling grasslands. Inner Mongolia was definitely uh, one of my highlights as well. Uh, China has a lot of renewable energy, and in that kind of inner Mongolia, in the more remote areas where it's very windy, we saw a lot of wind turbines, and we actually camped out in a Mongolian yurt underneath a wind turbine. Not a good idea. <clears throat> they make a lot of noise at night. Uh, they never stop, and they can be quite creaky when they twist to adjust to the wind. But apart from that, there's a bunch of them out there, and we actually had a chance to kind of ride through the grass uh, out through the wind farms, which was great. Um, wildlife is pretty funny. We saw a ton of wildlife, but we're not, uh, we weren't very quick with the camera, so all we got were these slow-moving camels, and we got them from behind, which is the most attractive view. So, um, we, you know, we saw gazelles, you know, which is like a deer kind of thing in Tibet, just climbing up the side of a mountain. We didn't get that shot. Um, but there was a ton of wildlife in western China and parts of Tibet. Bird life, all kinds of stuff that you just yaks. wouldn't... Yaks. Yes. Lots of yaks. Lots you of almost yaks. hit a yak. They're huge. They're huge. It's really not hard to almost hit a yak. Um, this is a great example of kind of what we looked like on our bikes. Uh, you know, uh, Colin here is in the black, and you can see, you know, he's got this communication system on his helmet, and this allowed us to communicate with each other. Um, so, you know, during the day we were able to actually have a conversation because it can be quite lonely in your motorcycle helmet by yourself. So we actually used that as a way, too, to make sure we were very safe. We were able to kind of talk about traffic conditions and how they changed. And sometimes you've got crazy trucks going like 140 kilometers an hour up the side with no brakes. So you always want to be watching and get out of the way of those. And then these, you know, we had small cameras up on top of our helmets as well, which was kind of documenting what we were seeing. Um, this is a shot of Colin and I at the border of Inner Mongolia and Gansu. Again, kind of before the trip got really nasty. Mildly well-nourished at that stage. Um, accidents? Saw tons of them. You know, it's just China's, China and India, I guess, are pretty sort of neck and neck with the most dangerous roads in the world. Well, this is the thing. When we actually did our trip in China, China had the most dangerous roads in the world, like most deaths per year per 100,000 people, something like that. And it was like a daily basis that we were seeing cars getting pulled out of ditches. And we're spending 10 to 12 hours a day on those same roads, thinking, why are we here? What's going on? Um, is this a good idea? Shouldn't show my wife that picture? Uh, the Turpan Oasis, yeah. Yeah, this was really good. Again, I, I wasn't even much of an adventure, so I really didn't camp 
Ever. You, you never camped never camp. before this trip. Which is weird as a Canadian. You think Canadians are outdoors and so... Sorry, Canada, for, for ruining that a little bit. Um, this is a, yeah, Turkmen Depression is actually the, the second or third lowest point in the world. Second lowest point in the world, first lowest point in China, minus 154 meters below sea level. And we, uh, yeah, we camped out. And uh, you can see we had two separate tents because although we wanted to do a trip together, we needed to have some space. Very important if you're doing multi-week trips with family members. Um, but you can see it really did look like the moon. Uh, it was quite incredible to, um, to kind of wake up in the morning and, uh, and feel a little bit like uh, Neil Armstrong and not Lance Armstrong. Um, <clears throat> uh, this is a great example. You know, we just come off, we just come off perfect tarmac. And in China, there's a lot of road construction. And there's, so we just come off perfect tarmac. And every time we went from tarmac to dirt roads, we had to stop, adjust the suspension, add some, you know, reduce the air pressure. So we're constantly making these small adjustments to the bike each day. And this is a shot of Colin, um, you know, getting in there and just adjusting the suspension or warming your hands or doing something. But we'll th you were technical. Yeah, on I, was, that. I was the technical of the two of us. <laughs> Isn't saying much. Um, yeah. This is a plane on the back of a truck. It's really what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> With no wings. This is easily the strangest thing we saw in China, and we just had to mention it. So again, sitting on the side of the road, drinking water, got my camera around my neck, and we see this truck coming by, coming by, coming by, and as it passes, there's an airplane on the back. It kind of looks like a jet fighter. You know, I saw Top Gun. It kind of looks like one of those kind of planes, but it's got no wings. And you're thinking, this is the middle of nowhere, uh, desert, western China, camels, and, uh, and a plane on the back of a truck with no wings. So that's how, I guess, they're moving planes around these days. Gas is expensive. Um, ah, for anyone who thought our trip might be glamorous, it really wasn't. And, and the real issue is, is that in most parts of China, in most parts of China, you can't get hot lunches. Um, you know, the roads are tough, the roads are difficult, and there's not a lot of, like, gas stations and stuff along the way, and if there are gas stations, there's not a lot of amenities. Uh, it's a little bit different, kind of, than traveling through Europe, perhaps. So we would often um, have lunch on the side of a road, uh, just so that we could continue and keep our momentum. If anyone's ever done a long trip before, you'll know that a big, fat belly lunch will kill you. Uh, and kill your momentum and make you kind of lazy and tired. So we just ab absolutely kind of avoided that. And we went for the Oreo cookie water combination uh, pretty much every day. And, and for, anyone who's, for anyone who's traveled in China, you'll realize that these are the strawberry Oreo cookies, and they're horrible. So they've got this, like, strawberry paste in the middle. I'm more of a vanilla guy. And, but out in western China, that's all they've got is this strawberry-filled Oreo. And it's not, not healthy. It's not good. But, uh, but yeah, we did make it, and that's kind of a typical example of, um, of our lunch break. Oh, the teapots. You've got to talk about the teapots. teapots? Yeah. So in China, again, no one really rides big motorcycles. Uh, it's just very, very, very uncommon. So you are treated as a 800cc motorcycle as if you were on a pedal bike or a 150cc motorcycle. And what that means is that you cannot go on expressways. Um, and when you fill up gas, you have to go to the side of the gas station with all the little bikes. Um, you can't use the nozzle? You can't use the nozzle. And you actually have to fill up this little teapot, walk it over to your motorcycle, and then pour it in your motorcycle 
walk back and fill up the teapot. They only had one teapot. Some places only had one teapot. Our bikes, what, the 16-liter tanks? Four teapots per bike. Total teapots? Eight. Total time per gas station fill-up? Too much time. Too much time. So, wait. So, you know, you're riding around... You need gas. You pull up. You put the nozzle thing in your gas. You press the hose. You know, five minutes, you got a full tank, and you're on your road, right? But, you know, Colin and I are filling up this teapot, going back and forth eight times to fill up two motorcycles. Most of our gas stops were 30 to 40 minutes. Now, if anyone has ever done a road trip, you know that you don't want to be driving or riding a motorcycle at night. So that means you have to use available daylight to the most efficient way possible. And when you're spending 45 minutes filling up your effing bikes with gas using a teapot, you can imagine the frustration of just burning away the available light. And Colin at this stage, you actually can't see it, but his jaw is tense, and there are multiple four-letter words coming out of his mouth uh, as we uh, took another 45-minute gas break. Well, sometimes we fill up four times in a day, three times in a day. So you think, jeez, adds up. It does add up. I spent a lot of time, more time with a teapot on that trip than ever in my life. Yes. Uh, But but we're not English. So, so Kashgar. Uh, Kashgar. Uh, Kashgar is a great city in Xinjiang, and this is the Idka Mosque in Kashgar, which is probably one of the the most important uh, Muslim mosques, Islamic mosques in all of Central Asia. And... um, and Colin and I were very lucky. We happened to roll into Kashgar. It was actually very well organized by me. On the exact day that Ramadan was ending. And Ramadan is the observance uh, by Muslim people of not eating. They fast for 30 days. And they only eat after the sun sets. So they go 30 days where they fast during daylight hours. And then on the last day of Ramadan, which is when we arrived, everyone goes to the mosque and prays. It's a little bit of an end of a of a tough period of time for them. And we happened to be there, and there were about 15,000 you know, um, people praying in front of the Idka Mosque and inside the Idka Mosque, and we just happened to kind of roll in. And I've been kind of traveling in this area for many years, photographing the people there. But Colin, you, you were kind of blown away by this experience because you'd never seen anything like this in your life before. Yeah, you know, I hadn't... Again, Canada, mass religion, sort of 20,000 people sort of meeting in a square to sort of worship the same thing only happens during hockey games. Um, So, again, I had never really seen this kind of mass religion, and then I had never really realized the the strength of the Muslim faith uh, in this part of China. Um, And it was was an extremely powerful moment for me, Um, and it was just uh, a great, great time and a great, great, great memory. This is the uh, picture you saw on the front of our presentation. So this is Colin and I looking a little bit worse for wear. Um, please do notice the hair uh, and the big beards. Uh, this is probably on day, I'm going to say about 40. This is the G219 highway. And at this moment, we are both above uh, 5,000 meters above sea level. So we are struggling for oxygen. We are a little bit tired. And we have some legendary helmet hair. Uh, But you can see it looks like a high-altitude desert. And it's really strange, and there's all these glacial lakes. And as hard as that part of the journey was, Colin and I are still talking about going back and doing it again because it was just so beautiful. And that's kind of a classic example of um, of the beauty of that part of Western China that no one's really ever seen before. This is uh, a, a beautiful glacial lake just outside of Lhasa. 
And you can see that uh, this picture is actually in far western Tibet, which is very much higher altitude and glacial lakes. And then as you move into eastern Tibet, you get much more kind of valleys and rivers and, and other kind of lakes, and, but much more green. And then uh, this is the Li River in Guilin and Yangshou, where no doubt some of you tonight have actually been to before. It's quite a, quite a well-known uh, holiday destination in China. But one of the reasons why I put these three pictures together is just to show the landscape difference, you know? So many people who have never been to China just have no idea that, you know, one day you can see that, and the next day you can see that, and the next day you can see that. And, you know, you go from, you know, eastern wetlands, river valley, um, you know, green rolling mountains in central Tibet, and then a high-altitude desert that's pretty much killing everything in it, including two Canadians. Um, and that's kind of the mystery and the beauty of the kinds of landscapes that we explored. And that's... It, when you travel through a, a place like China by motorcycle and you experience one kilometer at a time, uh, that's really the feeling you come away with because you get to see all of that happen um, on, a, on a kind of daily basis, on an hourly basis. So, Carl, what do we got uh, here? We've got the television show. The TV show came out last week, which is exciting. Uh, looks like people are watching it, which is always a good thing. Um, we uh, DVDs coming out uh, shortly, um, and a book is available now, I believe, outside, perhaps, uh, yeah. or on Amazon. Um, we just completed the uh, riding around India. Again, we won't get too, too much into that, but it was... Uh, Potentially harder, I think, than, than China. It was, uh, it was an exhausting 54 days. 54 days, yeah. 54 days Somehow we still liked each other after the China trip, and we thought, hey, we should try India next, because it's a big, huge, confusing country, and we should give that a roll. And we did. Uh, and we actually finished production on it, and all that kind of stuff will be coming out later in the year. Uh, lecture series uh, today is just one of many. We're kind of sharing our experiences uh, in China, traveling around. And we're very, uh, we're very keen to do that and share our story with as many people as possible. And we have more productions coming up soon in secretive locations. We're still waiting for our North Korean film visas. So we're, we're working on that. And uh, we, we were talking to Dennis Rodman. We're going to try to sneak in with him maybe. Yeah, Dennis is a big Harley fan, so we're working on that. But uh, it would be, be a bit silly to do that. Uh, but, of course, you can follow us on the mkride.com, which is our website. We have a Facebook page, you know, Facebook backslash... MK Ride. And that's really uh, the end of our talk today. So we'd like to open the, uh, the room to a Q&A. If, uh, if some of you can stay, we'd love to hear your questions and we will do our best to answer them. Uh, uh, hold on one second. She'll pass around a microphone. And if you want one of us specifically to address the question, yeah. Brilliant, by the way. Um, firstly, um, I'm going to China in the summer, and the first thing I thought of, oh, I could run my motorbike. And then um, I realized that, um, well, I read that you foreigners can't have a driving license unless you pass the Chinese driving test, which is in Chinese written. It's about 70 or questions in Chinese plus a practical test. So how did you get around that? I'm going to address this question. So I, uh, I live in China, and I cannot read Chinese characters, but please don't judge me. And I did pass my Chinese driver's uh, test. So actually, if you're going as a tourist and you have a tourist visa, if you have a, uh, you know, a UK driver's license, yeah. you can uh, travel around the country. Uh, one of the things we did for Colin, because he wasn't a resident of China, whereas I was a resident, is we went to the official, translation, the fi official driver's license translation bureau. 
And for 50 RMB, which is about five pounds, we got his uh, driver's license and motorcycle license officially translated. And we kept that in our pocket the whole trip, and we never had to pull it out once. What you're going to have problems is finding a bike. Because there's no bike rental system, there's no insurance, people don't trust each other. You might have to lay down a huge amount of cash and then bring the bike back later to get it back. So that's kind of, the infrastructure in China is not really set uh, for motorcycle rental. But it's a fantastic idea and if you can find someone to lend you a bike, go for it because it can be quite good. But be safe, please. And just one practical question. Surely in some of the Mongolian places you'd be running out of petrol because how did you, what did you really plan, like how, you, how often you had to go for petrol and stuff? You uh, we did much. have to, we, there were some places where we had to carry petrol. And, uh, and actually there were many days where we were coasting on fumes into the next teapot gas yes. station. Okay. So, thank you. Thank you. Just to continue that question about permits, um, how on earth did you get through Tibet without either being on a permit or with a tour group, which is what I had to do when I went? If I tell you, I may have to kill you. Now, that was obviously the hardest part of the trip. So, you know, to get a, um, to get a travel permit in Tibet is actually not so difficult. Uh, it, you know, as, a, as foreigners, you have to get a special, like, travel permit to travel through Tibet. You have to travel with a tour guide, and we went through that process because there was no way that we were going to circumnavigate China without exploring Tibet. Um, the landscape is stunning. The people are fantastic. It's a spiritual place, and it was something that we wanted to show and explore. So we really worked hard. And actually, um, logistically, it was the hardest part of our trip. And from a cost-wise, it was actually really expensive to get all the permits and stuff like that. So it was probably the most expensive part of our trip as well. But we did kind of go through official channels to get all of that done. And it worked out. Um, yeah, right here. Do you want the other wireless mic, and then I'll be on these? Um, I just want to know, going back to normal life, which was the impact? I mean, at first you couldn't ride, almost not ride the bikes, but going back from all these kilometers, all this experience, like everyday life, breakfast, common life with family, how was it? Um, well, I think, you know... When you're traveling like this, it's, it's incredibly hard, but it's also very exciting. Every day is different. Every day on the road is different. You meet new people. You, every, you know, it's, uh, it's very stimulating. Um, and then when you go home, it's not. Uh, but it's stimulating in different ways. So my, my wife's not here. She'd slap me or throw a shoe. But, you know, it's, it's different. You know, you, you're happy to be home uh, with your kids. You're happy to be home with your wife. But... It's, it, you do come down quite far from the kind of excitement of being on a great adventure, and you can go through a little bit of depression, like a post kind of... Again. Yeah, because, you know... Spike depression? Slight depression. Because you're, you're, you're living on adrenaline, and adrenaline is a drug, and every day you're just pumping yourself up to not get hit by a truck. And, and then all of a sudden you don't have to do that anymore, and then it becomes really hard just to get out of bed. Um, and you, I, I, I think, too, is. Um, when you're on a motorcycle trip, especially, or, or on any trip, it's very much life is easy. You just need. That's wait. why I say, how can you go back yeah, to like so more than normal life? Once you get used to have pack everything in like 20, 30 centimeters, and you have just to manage with wheels and food and basic things like 
it's just nice not to be bombarded with marketing. You know, you have, <laughs> no, to, I mean, buy, you you have to buy this, you have to buy this, you have to buy that. Yeah, I mean, you fall in love with this kind of life because you go back to live with almost nothing, but, it, but you loved it, your love of landscapes you can see. Mm. And that's why I say, how can you go back and say, well, I have everything, but I don't need it. Mm. And I think that, uh, can you confirm me that the question is, when can I leave again? <laughs> Which is the next trip or where can I go now? <laughs> Again, where's the motorbike? Yeah, you, you do get the travel bug, obviously, everyone talks about it. And, you know, I, I think the memory, you know, you, you really adapt quickly to modern life again, right? And so you try so hard to, to sort of keep the thoughts that kept you going through the trip and how you wanted to live your life when you got back. And, you know, you wouldn't buy materialistic things and you wouldn't go and, you know, for me, go get another bank job and, and these types of things. And you try to live the life... Uh, in the best way that you can from, from all that time on your own and thinking. Um, but it is hard. You, you, you get sort of sucked in by sort of modern life and fun toys and spending more money than you make and all this fun stuff that uh, the world revolves around. But the good thing is, is you know, we, are make, we, you know, we came home and we started working on our book and we started working on post-production on our television show and then that took up a lot of time and then we love reliving that through that process. And then, you know, after a year... You know, you get back in with your family, and then you carry, okay, honey, I'm thinking maybe about doing another. And then you start, you got to go really easy on that. You know, you got to start laying that in at lunches and dinners, and then, and then you get the Lonely Planet or something, and you're like, oh, look at that, Lonely Planet for India. It's like, oh, where'd that come from? And it's like, oh, you know, that looks like a great road. Um, yeah, and then, you know, you're dropping hints left and right for a few months, and then eventually she says, you really want to go to India, don't you? And you're like, yes, please, God. And I, 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 I studied Buddhism. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, you know, you get you get into it, and it's hard to come back. But uh, but normal life is good because you get to talk about you're going to get to share your experiences with with the wider audience, which is kind of the most re- rewarding part. Just the last question: um, as two brothers, I mean, having fun and facing all these challenges, did you ever try to challenge even the motorbikes have more fun instead of like just respecting nature or like? Like two brothers having adventures, like say, oh, who's coming fast, and how can we challenge the motorbikes? How can we make it? Like, guys, stuff. That's what I say. Um, he's extremely controlled and protective. <laughs> oh, um, so, uh, so he'd be if we were racing, he would just sort of put it on its kickstand really? and say, I'm not, I'm not taking part in this. Um, so no, there was none of that uh, rah rah roar roar. I'm, uh, I'm going fast. No, you know, um, we were so cautious. You know, we just respected where we were. Uh, respected that we were on the most dangerous roads in the world. And to be honest, we just traveled so slowly every day because we just didn't want to come off the bikes. We didn't want to get hit by anything. And uh, caution was the word of the day every day. So I'm, I'm sorry if that disappoints. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what else to say. Uh, sure, in the back, and then you. Hi. Um, following on from the Tibet question, what happened to your tour guides in Tibet and Xinjiang? They weren't in any of the pictures. Were you actually accompanied by them, as, as is implied in the kind of rules? Well, Xinjiang is open, so we were able to travel through Xinjiang by ourselves. One of the things you might not have gathered from our show and what we've talked about, and, and we're not trying to hide this in any way, shape, or form, we had a support vehicle following us with all of our camera equipment and Chad, who has the very pale legs. So we did have an SUV kind of around us at all times, whether it was a couple hundred kilometers behind or whatever, because they're filming. We didn't want Chad to be on another motorcycle. And Chad had a driver driving him, and that person was local. 
And that person changed throughout the journey. So, you know, the funny thing about China is very few people actually speak Chinese, Putonghua, Mandarin. Uh, and especially when you get out into the more remote areas, people speak their local dialect. So when we were in Xinjiang, we really needed to have a Uyghur person that we trusted who spoke the local language. And when we were in Tibet, we also had a Tibetan person who spoke the local language because Mandarin just wasn't going to get it done. Um, you were here in the front. Thank you. I just wanted to know, did you ever get lost? How did you navigate and what were the maps like? Got lost all the time. Yeah. Um, this is like the rain suit question again for me. Yeah. Do you know where you're going? Yeah, no problem. Somehow, there's a lot of false confidence on these kinds of journeys. You know, you feel like you're, um, you're really kind of exploring, but you're actually just getting lost half the time. So we had, uh, we had a navigational device. Um, we had a navigational device. It was kind of on our motorcycle so we could see it. Uh, but it was probably the map on it. You know, you download these maps and things like this. It's very archaic. Uh, it was probably three or four years old. And, and China's growing very quickly, and there's lots of new roads and new highways. So it actually wasn't very helpful at all. So Colin and I both have smartphones, and we were actually using that to try to navigate. But in eastern China, it's no problem because the roads are very well marked. And in western China, it's not too bad because there's only one road. But um, the problem was is getting into a city and out of a city. So we would, we would often go for a big city maybe once every week to kind of stock up on food and, and shower because that's a basic necessity. And, and you'd want to do that. So sometimes getting into a city and finding like a, 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 you know, a one-star hotel or a two-star hotel and then getting out the next day, that actually would eat up hours of time because getting back to that same road on the other side of the city uh, was quite challenging. So navigation-wise, um, we did make a few errors but nothing that really uh, hurt us too badly. India was much more difficult. Yeah. We weren't. You just go west. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of, yeah. When we came in, when we came into that kind of uh, Turpano uh, oasis or the desert there, uh, you know, because we were camping at the exact lowest point in China, there was a little monument there saying the lowest point in China, and uh, like there is in many places in China. And so actually there were uh, existing tire marks that we followed to the lowest point in China, which is quite the place to, to camp. Uh, but then going out, we did get a bit confused. But we knew that somewhere like 30 kilometers away, there was a north-south road. So we just went west, and we thought we'll hit that road at some stage, and we did. And we're alive to talk about it. So that's, we did that a lot. We're just, you know, we were able to look at the map and say, okay, there's a road somewhere over there. And then you're bouncing along in the desert and then you hit the road. Yeah. It's trial by error. And there was lots of error. Uh, yes, in the front. Hi, I'm just wondering how you would compare and contrast your um, adventures in China versus in India. And in terms of like hospitality or infrastructure or heat, stuff like that. Interesting. It's a big question. It's a huge question. So obviously China has better infrastructure than India. I hope I'm not breaking down anyone's you know, ideas of what India may or may not be. China has you know, first-class infrastructure in the east. In the west, it's a little bit more rugged and a little bit tougher. Uh, but India has bad infrastructure everywhere, including central Delhi and central Mumbai. So the infrastructure wasn't as good. And one of the issues with China is we all know China has 1.3 billion people. Uh, but China is about three times larger than India as a physical landmass. And Chi India has about 
1.2 billion people, but it's on one third the land space. You know, the land space. So, uh, India on a on a like a per square kilometer basis is like a hundred times more densely populated than China. And a lot of these people live along the highway or live along the road because that's where the money comes from. People stop, they buy things, you hitchhike, you get to the, you get to work. So, riding along these highways in India, there's people everywhere, and there's cows, and there's donkeys and there's dogs and there's those little like uh, tuk tuk three wheel things that just do u-turns right in front of you on an 80 kilometer an hour highway so india was a real challenge uh, whereas china was much more us in the middle of nowhere any anything to add to that yeah no i think i think there were a lot of similarities which is why we wanted to do india next um the diversification of the landscape was you know incredible the diversification of uh the people and the religions was was as incredible um but yeah, I personally felt that India was actually more difficult in terms of, of just getting from place to place. The densely populated, the traffic was worse. Um, and the food and the cleanliness was a big issue in India. Uh, whereas in China, you know, even, even far remote China, things were just cooked really well. You know, you're, you're dealing with glacier lakes and water wasn't really an issue. Whereas, whereas all of India, uh, where we got our food, was, was a huge uh, thing to consider or else, you know, you get food poisoning. You're out for a few days, and uh, and it, you know you do that every week, and you have you know a team of four. All of a sudden, someone's got food poisoning every few days, which uh, which can make things difficult. So we had to be really careful on, on that point. And the heat. So in in China, we had a lot of problems with cold weather: uh, the rain, the hail, the snowstorms, the hypothermia. In India, it was the heat, and we weren't ready for that. We weren't ready for the Indian heat, which uh, which was kind of soul destroying some days. Because again, we, you know, we had all the kit on and we wanted to be safe and sometimes we came off the bike and that saved us, you know, elbow pads, back pads, helmet, all the good things. But, uh, you know, we did sweat significantly. <laughs> Any, uh, anyone else? Oh, up there. There's someone with a microphone up there. <clears throat> Where'd she come from? Thank you for your talk. It's very interesting. Um, I was wondering about two things. You mentioned audience a few times, and then, of course, adventure. And um, the, you know, the remit of your trip was, was adventure, and it's going to be on um, the Travel Channel, did you say? Or, uh, yeah, Travel Sky. Channel. Yeah, there you go, Sky. Um, <laughs> and uh, audiences, we, we, we've been talking, of course, or you've been talking about uh, the people you've met along the way, which I'm sure made a big impact on you. But then there's the audience uh, of the people watching, watching your show. And I was wondering... Um, whether anyone in, for example, China will have an opportunity to see the show. Of course, you were probably a novelty in, in many places you went there, but is this, is this um, is part of the reason for your trip uh, that age-old sort of adventurous spirit of two people going to what, what they think is an unknown place when it perhaps is known by... You know, the 1.3 1. 1. 3 billion, billion people, people that were there. And, you know, just the repercussions of... of and the the connotations of, of, of that. It's that a great style. question, actually. I do this talk a lot in China because I live in China. And Chinese people in China find me quite strange because I actually have been to more parts of China than they have and kind of seen more um, than they have. But Chinese, a lot of the Chinese people we speak to, and, and I go to a lot of universities and do a lot of uni uh, university outreach, they have a huge adventurous spirit inside. And I don't know if you've seen a lot of um, television shows and movies in China recently. There's a lot of people cycling in China. This is really catching fire. People are, are going from Yunnan into Tibet 
on two wheels, you know, cycling, and people are doing cycling adventures in eastern China as well. Um, you know, Colin and I, we didn't have an idea that what we were doing was, you know, um, you know, had never been seen before. We weren't really that naive, but what we wanted to really do was make a television show that was a little bit different and showing kind of kilometer by kilometer how things change uh, and hopefully bringing a different style of adventure television to, you know, a wider mass audience in North America and Europe. So we had, you know, we had great respect for, you know, where we were, what was going on. We didn't really feel like we were, you know, explorers in the, in the truest sense. We weren't taking huge risks and leaving our families for years at a time to sail across, you know, off the edge of the earth um, or anything like that. But, uh, and, you know, there are a lot of Chinese people who do similar kinds of trips, but they just don't really publicize them or, or create kind of products that they can share with a wider audience the way we did. Um, so we've got a lot of traction in China, and we're hoping that our show will actually come out in China uh, later this year, maybe on CCTV9, which is the English language uh, station there. We're hoping for that. Any other, uh, any other questions? One more up top. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, I was just wondering how you financed it and how much did it actually end up costing? Uh, the total cost, uh, you know, we spent maybe as a group traveling every day for 65 days, we probably spent about five, 600 RMB a day, which is, you know, 50, 60 quid a day, staying in really kind of nasty spots. Uh, but, you know, food's not expensive in Western China, which is where most of our trip was. Uh, you know, the guest houses that we stayed at were very reasonably priced. And, um, you know, in many cases, the more expensive parts of our journey were the, you know, the film equipment and all the hard drives and the batteries and things like that, which, which ran a little, bit, uh, a little bit more. But, you know, we, we set out to make a television show, and that obviously added to the cost. So I think the thing is, is that you don't necessarily need a lot of financing to go out and have a great adventure, whether it's just a weekend or a, a, long, you know, a long weekend or, or a week-long holiday or summer holiday. Um, but obviously, if you try to make a television show, the costs kind of go up exponentially. Yeah, the SUV we kind of rented with the driver, so that was like a per day cost. Um, and the bikes, you know, we bought them and then, you know, sold them afterwards uh, for, you know, and kind of reinvested ourselves in that way. So it wasn't, wasn't incredibly kind of breaking the bank kind of expensive. We, you know, we camped a lot, and, and it was good fun. So we tried to keep the, the cost kind of down to a minimum. And that's where we kind of had the real adventure. Any, uh, any other questions? Yeah, here. Thank you. Uh, so you guys did it for a TV show, so I appreciate the whole SUV and the whole kind of support vehicle. If you were doing it just totally solo with, as a duo, and there's no support vehicle. Just uh, how would you have done things differently? What are the considerations there if there really is no support vehicle? Uh, can you really carry everything you need and the distances between places, things like that? Particularly for someone who's thinking about doing something not quite like that. Are you going to try to do something like this? <laughs> Does your mother know? <laughs> no, I was thinking in Tanzania or something like that. For okay. a shorter period. I, I, I would suggest... Yes, you. the biggest thing, don't ride, a, don't ride a foreign motorcycle. Uh, I would say if you don't have a support vehicle because uh, it's too much to take, carry all the spare parts and tires and everything like that. So I would ride a local bike. Um, riding a local bike I think really makes your life easier if you can't have a support car because uh, if it's a relatively populated area and you're riding a local machine, they can, you know, people can fix it almost everywhere and there's spare parts almost everywhere. I would say that's the biggest 
the biggest advice I, I, I would say. Um, you know, the, the majority of the stuff in the support vehicle, to be honest, was, was, was equipment for camera and hard drives and, and these types of things. Uh, we didn't really take a ton of clothing. Uh, no rain suit in the in the support vehicle, um, and uh, and so there wasn't there wasn't a huge amount of stuff. You know, we had spare tires and spare parts, which which is sort of the only thing that we really had in there that we required. Um, and and that was primarily just because we were riding bikes that there, there were no parts anywhere in China for. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely carry everything you need. You know, you, you got a tent, and you bring you know you pick up some food along the way, and you got a spare T-shirt, and you'll be fine, right? I mean, you don't need a ton of stuff. And like I said, if you travel, like Colin said, if you travel with a local bike, um, you can get it fixed every like 50 kilometers. There'll be some guy who can help you fix your bike, uh, which kind of reduces the amount of stuff you need to carry. Which we did in India. We rode Royal Enfields in India 350s, and uh, literally, you know. You, 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 you have a problem with your bike and you roll it 10 feet and there's someone who can fix it. So. Indian people are very industrious and very helpful. So that was good. Thank you. Any other? Yeah, in the front. Because I suddenly feel hungry, so <laughs> I'd like to ask a question related to food. Um, before that, let me thank Colin and Ryan for giving us this speech because Although I work with Colin, I work in Mandarin House, and I see Colin every day, and I partially know your journey, your adventure, but tonight's talk is really good because I know more interesting stories about it. So related to the food, um, I'd like to ask, during your journey within 65 days or within uh, in 60 days in India, when you feel sick or when you feel fatigued, have you ever... Well, like, what kind of foods that come into your mind that you miss most? It's because um, when I'm whiskey. Sick, no, no, because no, no. Yes. I'm from China, but I currently live here in London. So sometimes when I when I feel uncomfortable, when I feel sick, I definitely would like to just have a bowl of rice. I don't care about like French cuisine or Italian pasta. I just would like to have a bowl of rice. That's all. Comfort food. Yeah. <laughs> so I just would like to ask when you had probably a lot of strawberry flavored Oreo or some <laughs> local food in China and also when you grabbed a lot of curry stuff in India what is the food that you miss most um, I'll go first like I uh, I'm not a foodie uh, I don't know you know I, that's probably the best way to describe I just eat for like pure f fuel like I don't really care about what I eat as long as you know, I'll just kind of shovel it in um, and then and then get on with it. So I'm I'm very less kind of concerned about what I eat on a daily basis. So I don't really have maybe the biggest comfort food that I can think of when I'm really kind of down or low is just chocolate because that kind of shoots you shoots you right back up, um, which is great. But uh, but I didn't really have any comfort food. Did you have any? Yeah, I think. Um you know, I think I think China probably a little bit less, to be honest. I actually quite enjoyed. Um, again, I'm a I'm not a foodie either. I'm you know f fuel guy, and uh, China was great. Just you know rice and some meat, um, and you never ask what the meat was. You just just eat it because you're hungry. Pork, um, pork, 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 probably pork, mostly. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know you miss the nice greasy burger and a beer or something like that. Um, I'd say in India, I really missed eating with confidence. 
is maybe what you could say. Um, <laughs> the comfort is the confidence. Exactly, exactly. You're just like, oh, sure, how much should I eat to this? And, oh, it just, it's, you know, every time you eat, you're just kind of worried what might happen to you. And so, we, always, uh, we always had this funny thing. Every time we would eat dinner, he was, I would go, Colin, what do you think of dinner? And he goes, I'll let you know in two hours. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, did you like that dinner, Colin? He's like, I'll, you know, we'll talk about it in two hours. If we can get, if we can get past that two-hour marker... Even, We're home free. Sometimes I wouldn't comment on a meal until it was, you know, a good day. Good day, good a day. good day through. Well, we were only meeting, eating one meal a day, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. Uh, yes, in the back. Thank you very much. Uh, the question I have is, you know, there were good days and there were bad days. And in those bad days, how did you manage to keep your morale and spirits up that, you know, let's just pack it in and, you know, it's just not worth it? What, what kept you guys going, you know, in those bad days, dark days? I think that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, if you're going to do something that's very challenging, you really have to know your partner. Um, you really have to know. I think it's great to do a great adventure with someone else. And that person that you do an adventure with has to be someone who is going to lift you up when you are down and not push you down further. <laughs> so there has to be kind of a real personality um, gel with the, with the person you're traveling with. And, and there were days where I felt really low and Colin would kind of pick me up and say, look, you know, we're doing a great thing. We're almost there, you know, very encouraging. Um, and then, you know, when, when Colin was down, I would do the same thing. And we made a conscious effort to kind of not be overly negative when things were going down. And, you know, in some cases it was just comical. Like, you know, you know I get a flat tire and then my clutch would break down and then we get stuck in a hailstorm all within like an hour. And it's just like, you know, what, what's going on? But we tried to keep it really loose and we tried to keep it not so serious and, and help each other along the way. Did you feel anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I think for me, whenever I felt really down, I just sort of... You know, we're so fortunate and lucky to be on a trip like this, right? So, and I just kept thinking, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm not, this is, this is kind of my temporary job. Um, and, and I'm just so lucky to be uh, on this adventure experiencing, uh, having these great experiences and seeing a culture that I knew nothing about. Um, and so I'd sort of tell myself to stop whining and being a little baby and, and uh, you know, think about how many people out there would have been so happy uh, to, to switch spots with me. Um, so you sort of self-reflect on actually how lucky you are to be in the position that you are, no matter how bad it is. And I think uh, it, it raises your spirits pretty quickly. I think also, too, before Colin and I set out on this journey, and before we set out on any journey, we kind of have an agreement that as long as one of us doesn't end up in the hospital, we carry on. And that might sound, you know... You can fall and be okay. You can get food poisoning and be okay. You know, you just have to kind of carry on and, and get on with it. Um, you know, but if you know you, someone falls and breaks their arm or their shoulder or collarbone, which is a common injury, or their wrists, you know, then you have to really stop. Um, so we were always kind of conscious of that. This, you know, as long as we're healthy, you know, maybe we have to rest an extra day here, but but we we have to keep moving. And then actually, this is what becomes addictive. There was a lady over here that was asking about. You know, this idea of the journey and, and the idea of moving every day is quite sexy and, and it's, it's a, an adrenaline kind of generator. You're always moving, you're always moving and, then, and you really love that and you become addicted to it and every day you're like, okay, let's go somewhere, let's do something and, uh, and that kind of carries, carries its own momentum and it kind of carries you through the low days or carries you through the days that you're a bit tired. 
Any, uh, anyone else? Uh, yes, over here. We'll just take this last question, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up. All right, thanks. Um, if I was planning a trip to China, what would be the, uh, if just for one province, what was the best province that you thought you had the best time in? Sorry, are you riding a motorcycle or just going for a backpacking trip or a tourism trip? The motorcycle. Motors- just, just, what was the best experience at what, at what point? For me, uh, I really thought Tibet was just amazing. Um, uh, it's such a such a special place, and I'm so glad that I got to see it uh, in in the form that it was. And, and currently now, it's I think close to close to foreigners, so it's sometimes tricky to get in there. Um, and and I would say that uh, if you're going to China, um, you know, fly through Shanghai or Beijing, check it out, and 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 sort of you know then hop into Lhasa and and, and sort of go for a, a real trek around Tibet. I thought it was just stunning. For me, it was definitely Xinjiang. So um, I quite like Xinjiang province. Uh, it has a, a great mix of landscapes. You know, you have deserts, mountains, rivers. There's parts of Xinjiang that look like Switzerland. Um, and then, of course, you have the cultures. And Xinjiang is a real mixed basket. It was obviously a, a Silk Road trading hub in various places along um, in Xinjiang. Kashgar, Turpan, Kucha, Aksu, all these small places. And you, had, you got a lot of mixed people. There's Mongolians, there's Tajiks, there's... There's uh, Uyghur, there's uh, Kyrgyz, there's Kazakh, there's um, Caucasian Russians. So um, I really kind of enjoyed the Xinjiang part because I felt that that was, you know, a kaleidoscope of what Central Asia really is and uh, in all in one spot. And, and it's important to also say that Xinjiang is actually, you know, from our experience, was really safe. Uh, whereas, you know, riding in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or Afghanistan or something like that, um, you know, you'd have to question your safety a little bit. But, um, but you know, for the journey that we, t- we took, it was, uh, it was quite a safe, you know, venture. We didn't really feel like we were in harm's way. Um, it's a, I think that will be it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you guys so much for your time. No, round of applause, please. I, I would like to say on behalf of the LSE to both of you, thank you so much for coming and for making a highly personalised account. Um, I, I, just one thing that um, I think that, that what you've done goes far beyond the sort of travelogue and really you know, what you can inspire other people to actually look at. And I'd be very much interested in seeing the, the photos that we have got exhibition space at LSE and it may be quite interesting to explore the possibility of looking at a selection of your photographs that you could perhaps um, speak about and and take us into some very, very, I think, sort of personalised stories. Dark, dark moments. (laughs) Well, not just those. (laughs) But um, a bit of light and shade anyway. Um, Now, there are are books available. um, They're to be bought outside um, and then you're both going to be around for a little longer to sign the books so um, if you are interested it's a great opportunity A to buy and B to get them to sign it as well so thank you very much for coming and uh, keep on coming to the LSE as well thank you thank you very much everyone lovely